Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Can you predict an earthquake like you can predict the weather? Now, earthquakes are incredibly complicated and dangerous. To be frank, we really don't understand them enough to have weather forecasts like predictions, but we still have to try. And how can we better understand these earthquakes? Is there a way to simulate them in the real world? Plus, what happens when you need to make a forecast about what an earthquake could do to your city? And how do these choices shape what governments do now and into the future? The Earth is an incredibly powerful force, and when that is shown to us, sometimes through natural disasters like landslides and earthquakes, it can be really terrifying, and at the same time, confusing. Because although the Earth is so big and so powerful, how exactly it all fits together, why it shakes, and the way in which it shakes, or doesn't stop shaking in some cases, is incredibly complicated. We don't understand it, to be quite frank. If we did, like in the way that we can predict when a hurricane or cyclone is about to bombard the coast of your country, well, we'd be able to do the same thing with earthquakes. But the truth is, plate tectonics are understood in principle, but in practice, we just don't simply have that level of understanding to be able to make the same kind of forecasts for what will happen with an earthquake. Now, we can definitely identify areas of stress, likelihood, potential for earthquakes, much in the same way as we can do for a volcano, but we don't know exactly when or how. And unlike a volcano, which is normally localized to one area, our predictions and understandings of where an earthquake might occur could be anywhere along a fault line, which could be thousands of kilometers, which makes the prediction vague and also not necessarily that useful. Now, it might seem a bit flippant to be talking about predicting an earthquake like the weather, but you have to remember that scientists are relied on by all kinds of people in government and in just day-to-day life to make predictions about what will happen to the world around them. These predictions allow people to form plans, set building standards, govern projects, decide where or not to put things, and these can have very serious real-world consequences. Because in the cases of several times in Italy, we have seen court trials where scientists from geological agencies have been taken to task and literally jailed in some cases for their role in failing to predict the significant damages that would have occurred from some earthquakes. Now, that's a bit of a scary example to bring up, but it's a valid one because it, it shows just how serious trying to predict and forecast earthquakes like the weather is, and just how difficult a job it is for science to do so. We, quite frankly, even if we would want to, we don't have the ability to know exactly when an earthquake will be and where it will be, which is even more important. Because the depth of an earthquake beneath the surface and where that earthquake rupture main point can occur can have huge impacts on the type of earthquake that we see. And all of these things make the major shock of an earthquake hard to predict. Another big problem is what happens afterwards. Aftershocks occur normally after earthquakes, but they can be really varied in size. Sometimes they can last for a few hours afterwards, other times days and weeks. In the cases of major earthquakes, these can be really traumatic for those who have gone through the already catastrophic event of a major earthquake to only have the reminders occurring without notice or random for the coming days, weeks and months. It's a really harrowing experience that you really don't want to have. So understanding how these earthquakes to shocks work and 
seeing how they can be propagated or predicted is really important. Now, the main quake is hard to predict, but the aftershocks, understanding and forecasting those is at least something that maybe we could perhaps do a bit better at. And that's what researchers have published in the journal Nature Communications. Co-lead authors on this paper are Sarah Beth Serbury and Chung Yung Ke, working under the direction of Greg McCleskey, who's a professor at Cornell University. Now, what they've been diving into is what a complex phenomena called a creep front. And how they've been exploring this is through some really intricate models. And I don't mean purely computational-based models. I'm talking actually also physically modeling seismic activity on a relatively large scale with really huge slabs of granite under immense pressure. Now, what the team did was take three meter-long slabs of granite and squish them with an almighty force, around 2 million pounds of force. That's a reasonable good scale-down approximation of what happens when you have tectonic plates 15 kilometers beneath the Earth's surface grinding and sliding against each other. This is a real-world simulation of what a plate movement might be like with large granite plates. Now, what they did is then take some plastic blocks around 70 centimeters in length and got some really finely ground quartz dust. And they put them between these two immense granite blocks. And the reason why they're doing this is trying to simulate, well, the fact that Earth's plates aren't actually two massive slabs of granite, but they're actually a bunch of things all intermingling with each other. And the quartz powder is acting like ground up sand. If you had granite plates or granite rocks sliding against itself in the large stress events, well, it would be pretty similar to this ground up quartz. And it was really important to get all these right materials together. Now, actually, the combination of using plastic blocks wasn't just for weight saving reasons to make the researchers' lives easier. It actually gives a right combination of ductility, and the rock dust also gives a bit of friction and sliding. Now, the reason why they really worked at this is because just the right amount of these different combinations, they could actually produce aftershocks in the same way as they would from a normal earthquake. Now, what they did in some cases was tune these balances of the right types of material mix, and when they applied a force, they could produce aftershocks. Now, they could get one part of the sample to slip all of a sudden rapidly. Now, when this slip happens, it radiated out across these slabs and everything in it and touching it, seismic waves, making little earthquakes in the granite and the rock and around it. And of course, there would be a little bit of a delay as it propagates out. Now, once it had propagated and they waited, at the other end of the sample, there'd be another rupture, a bit like an aftershock. Now, this is amazing because in a three meter long experiment, they're actually simulating what would be happening on a much, much larger scale. And the phenomena in question they're talking about here is what they call a creep front. Now, this is where you get some sections of the fault changing and slipping at different rates to other areas. Now, when this happens, it might be a small change or just a slight difference in the speed of one part moving. But up at the surface level, well, that can have immense differences to what happens to the rock above it, or in which case, the land. Now, this is one of the things where you can see, because a creep fault actually is quite a visible thing when you find one in the wild. In California, as an example, there are lots of these faults where you can see 
one side of a footpath after 10 years starts to shift a little bit. Even though there was no earthquake, that's one of the things that's happening here. The different areas of the fault and the plates are shifting with respect to each other. And when that happens, well, everything above it also has to shift. So even though there was no earthquake in that spot, there was some creeping, hence why it's called a creep fault. And instead of like some of the subsurface rocks sliding at a defined, simple, constant movement, it's a bit more complicated than that. One part of the fault slips faster than the other. And at that intersection between the fast and slow moving sections, you've got rock on one side migrating and propagating some seismic wave off to the other side. And from that, the group determined the speed and the strength of the creep fronts that they were causing to happen and how sensitive they were to different fault stresses or actual forces that were, as like an example of an earthquake, that they were measuring. And what that enabled them to build up is like a lookup table, something where they could say, ah, okay, for this kind of fault stress or force we're seeing, or another way to think about it, this type of shock of an earthquake, we see this kind of force or movement on our simulated creep. Now, this is really cool because it gives scientists some data to understand what happens when you have an earthquake in one location and how it can propagate out across the rest of the area. In, especially in areas with creep faults, you actually have something you could measure. Now, okay, these researchers aren't going tomorrow to be able to predict when an aftershock will occur. But knowing, okay, if I have this magnitude quake in this spot here, and not if it is on a creep fault, then you could actually go and measure in those fault points and use that to assess and predict the strength of the aftershocks and, and the way in which they're behaving. So this kind of data collection is seemingly really boring. In other ways, it's really exciting because they're literally building an earthquake simulator out of giant hunks of rock and sand and plastic blocks. But more importantly, what they're doing is modeling in a practical sense, analyzing and making new insights into how earthquakes actually work on a fundamental level, which is what we need to better understand a way which the earth works and the way we can use that to our advantage. This is some great work published in the journal Nature Communications with lead author Serbri and Julia Kev and collaborators from Cornell University. predictions about earthquakes is to look back at major events that have happened and see what lessons could be learned and try to apply them in both a planning sense and in also a disaster response sense. Now, researchers from Shinsu University in Japan have done exactly this and published in Landscape and Urban Planning Journal. Lead author was Masato Uehara along with Liao Orai Masakane, also contributing authors. Now, these researchers were poring over one of the most damaging earthquakes and related disasters that the world has seen. These are, of course, the 311 earthquakes in Japan. You may be familiar with these as a result of, well, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants disaster as well. Now, the Great East Japan earthquake in March 11th, 2011, 
wasn't just a single event, because of course, that earthquake caused tsunamis, it caused damage to a nuclear power plant, it caused obviously shocks and aftershocks, and repercussions across the world. So it's what researchers might call a compound disaster. Now, it's been a decade plus since this disaster, and the question is, what can we learn from it? How can we better prepare and better understand these compound events such that we would avoid them in the future? Now, there's a lot of ways you can make disaster risk reduction. One way to do it is to do a kind of multi-risk hazard assessment. And this is a really important process. And a lot of people have been doing this to look at where the most likely points of damage are from an earthquake, for example, and building a map and overlay, much in the same way as we would do with, say, a flood map. Look at a river and say, okay, if a river rose to this level or this level or this level, which houses, streets, regions would be impacted and in what way? So planning agencies and governments have these maps all the time. And in Japan, they have one since 1980, such as the 1980 Japan National Land Agency's Environmental Inventory. Now, these tools exist for a long period of time, and it's useful to look at, but they're only really designed around considering one disaster at a time. They're great for handling these individual hazards, knowing how much water will be produced in the case of a flood, maybe a hurricane or a typhoon comes through a region, and what happens, where does that water go? But when you have multiple hazards occurring at the same time and compounding on each other, making each other worse in a feedback loop, well, that's really difficult to plan for, and you can't have a simple map to overlay to do this. But by the same token, you can also identify areas which might be pinch points. You can look for areas where at risk of one or more things going wrong in a really catastrophic way. So using a theory which is outlined in a book called Design by Nature, the researchers applied this ecological environmental planning tool which looked at criteria and overlays for risk of possible disasters, including everything from volcanoes, earthquakes, mudslides, and flooding, and builds it all together. And they took this tool and tried to apply it over the top of Japan. Now, to test the viability, they compared the 1980 composite risk maps, and they looked at the actual results from the Great East Japan earthquake and compared them to the 2019 maps put together, obviously, as a result after those major events. And of the 60 damaged highway sites, 89% of them were viewed to have one or more high hazard risks, according to the 1980s map. But only 8.4% of them were noted in the new revised map, which means, in other words, that the new revised map was missing out on some stuff that the older designs weren't capturing. Similarly, around 81% of the sites around the Fukushima nuclear plant, both plants, the substation, the emergency site, they were all considered very high risks in the original 1980s map. But even after the 2011 disaster, looking at the current overlays used by the Japanese government, only around 0% of them, which is crazy to think about, were noted as incredibly high risk in this 2019 map. So this is important because it shows that despite the fact that researchers can come up with newer mechanisms and newer ways to view and analyze data, a lot of the time you could say that sometimes when in our quest to optimize, we may overlook things and overlook the way things can over interact with each other, compound and affect each other. And in this case, the newer maps produced 
after the 2011 major event, the Great Japanese Earthquake, are actually in some ways more optimistic and less conservative than the older maps from the 1980s. The 1980s maps were a bit more, let's call it, risk-sensitive, which was saying that they, they pick up risks more easily, uh, whereas the modern maps are a bit more optimistic in their forecasting of what might go wrong. The end result of this is when you think about a compound event, the maps that are produced in the modern area can in many ways be under-tuned to catch these events. So it's important to make sure that we have tools at scientists' disposal. When we talked about how scientists and researchers are often called on to guide government policy, give predictions, oftentimes it is not just as simple as predicting there will be an earthquake tomorrow. More often than not, it's building the criteria, building the assessments and the tools that go into formulating government policies and plans of what you can build and where you can build it and how what gets evacuated first, or gets managed first in the event of a disaster. These all get built up into complicated models, overlays, maps, that live in some civil servants' offices and are applied on council decisions to when you try to build something on your property or build a new train line or things of that nature. But scientists are having direct impact on what gets built based on the models and the tools that they have at the time. And sometimes these have flaws and weaknesses, not necessarily because the scientists are malicious and certainly not because the scientists need to go to jail for it, like in the case in Italy, but they're just making the best assessment they can with the tools that they have. So building better tools, thinking about compound risks, as outlined in this paper published in the journal Landscape and Urban Planning by Misato Yorhara and others, is important because it shows how you can consider multi-factor risks of these compound events and avoid one catastrophe getting immensely worse by trying to factor in what happens if more than one thing goes wrong at a time. This paper was published in the journal Landscape and Urban Planning and lead author was Misato Yurahara. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Earthquakes can have deadly consequences, so meeting the right plan and the right assessments in place and making predictions with the models that we have is immensely important. That's why understanding them is also important too. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.